3: Everyone, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I enjoy a lot of aspects about this show. I enjoy uh, getting to talk with uh, callers. I enjoy getting to express my own view. It's funny, when we did the Get At Frank hour the other day, there was more than one caller who I think correctly stated that I enjoy the sound of my own voice. Maybe that's true. Maybe I do. And uh, there's a lot of different things that I enjoy about doing this show. I mean, honestly, I can't imagine doing Anything else. But one of the greatest joys that I've had in doing this show and do have on literally almost a daily basis is learning because we have had some of the greatest experts and sometimes I just learn from rank and file callers. But when it comes to various subject matter, whether we're talking soda or astronomy or the weather or politics or crime I have really so enjoyed the conversations that I've gotten to have with experts that know a thing or two about a thing or two, and I almost feel like I've gotten a collegiate-level education listening to this show, forgetting about the uh, the fact that I get to be a part of it. Uh, just getting so many great questions answered to so many things that I'm curious about has been a real treat for me. Now, one of the people... Over the course of the last year or so that has provided so many of those answers is Steve Cates. He's also known as Dr. Sky. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in both astronomy and space. He's a regular on this show. You might have heard him on Sunday on the Cats Roundtable where he was uh, terrific as well. I always feel a little smarter whenever I get to spend an hour thinking and uh, talking about what's happening in the stars with Steve Cate. Steve, thanks, as always, for joining me on the radio.
0: Well, good morning, Frank, and thank you for having me back on 77 WABC. Really enjoy it, and thank you so much. Uh,
3: It is my pleasure. Believe me, I appreciate you being willing to uh, stay up this late. Now, uh, this week actually marks a pretty important anniversary in the history of space travel. It was... Fifty one years ago today that Apollo 14, the eighth crewed mission to, um, you know, in the in the Apollo program. Yes. uh, Finished its its mission. And it was a really remarkable mission. uh, Apollo 14 was Uh, since we're looking back at what happened 51 years ago. What exactly happened on Apollo 14? Why was it such a big deal? Well, Frank,
0: after the almost near to tragic and possible disaster with Apollo 13, there was a lot of pressure on NASA and the astronauts to recover and get the space program you know, back and give it a kick in the tail, as they say. But this particular crew, which I'm going to talk about, I spent a lot of time, and maybe some of the listeners out there had the opportunity to meet, and I hope they have, some of the moonwalkers, the original 12 that went to the moon. Sadly, only four are alive today. But I'll share that in just a moment, the time and experiences that I had with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. But this particular crew, three-man crew, Commander Alan Shepard, the first American in space, the command module pilot, Stuart Rusa, obviously Alan Shepard, the commander, and Stuart Rusa, and lunar module pilot, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. They return energy and purpose, as we like to say, to this program after the near-tragic events of Apollo 13. But here's something I think is very interesting. I remember this as a boy back in the New York area watching television on a little black and white television, as many people did. But they collected 94 pounds of lunar rocks and they conducted two of these very interesting EVAs, you know, where they would walk on the surface of the moon, probably a total of a little over nine hours and 23 minutes. And over the years, this is the part that I'm so fascinated about. I spent time with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, both at his home. And in the various space events that we would attend around the country. But one of the things that I asked him, and I think this is so important to share with the listeners. I said, Dr. Mitchell, you and Alan Shepard were walking up on the surface of the moon. And they were the last of those H missions, as they called them, to pull, I called it a little luggage cart on the surface of the moon, collecting these rocks. I said, did you have a chance to look up at the Earth? And this is fascinating, what he said to me. And he's passed on to the infinite a number of years ago. But what he said, Frank, is very simple. He said, we were so busy, we actually kind of got lost, and we had to get back to the lunar module. But when I looked up, and these are the words of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the size of the Earth in the lunar sky is four times the size of what we see as a large full moon. Now, can you imagine that, Frank? And then he described it in even greater detail. He said you could see continents, clouds, and part of the Earth was in daylight, and the other part was in darkness, and you could see the vast cities. You know, humanity were the lights of humanity on the surface of the earth. But I thought that's quite interesting because here they were in this area called Fra Moro, some of the highlands of the moon. This is where the Apollo 13 was to go. But this goes back in the history books that this is such an amazing mission because they actually gave more impetus to the Apollo program when it was actually kind of fading in people's minds. Because remember, Frank, Apollo 11 got all the glory, Apollo 12 we heard about, and that was great. Apollo 13, near disaster, but... They did so much, and this was the most accurate landing, people need to know this, of the lunar module of all the Apollo programs. They almost hit the bullseye. Some of the other landers were off mark, but they landed successfully. But, Frank, on February 9th, this date, 51 years ago, they safely returned to the Earth, and the rest is history. Quite an interesting story, don't
4: you
3: think? Yeah, I certainly do. I certainly do. Now, uh, you mentioned how, and I'm sure there was a lot of, Hesitance about continuing with the Apollo program after yeah. the, the problems with Apollo 13 and a lot of popular outcry to spend the resources that were being allocated to the space program elsewhere on domestic needs in America. That seems like there's always sure. a battle for those sort of things. Uh, just so folks understand, the historic Apollo 11 mission, which saw the yeah. first moon landing, Was there much of a difference in technology between Apollo 11 and Apollo 14? Sometimes it seems with space travel, things move very quickly in terms of technological development. And other times it seems they move at a snail's pace. How similar was the the actual vehicle that Apollo 14 was utilizing as compared to their predecessors that landed on the moon the first time?
0: Well, that's a great question. And the answer is this. These were called the H missions meaning that there were some things that they could carry onto the lunar module and some things they couldn't. But the real change, Frank, the real answer to the bottom line is Apollo 15, 16, and 17 really made the greatest strides in the ability of advanced you know, new design. The lander looked pretty much the same. But the big difference between the Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and 13, and 14, when you got to the 15, 16, and 17, they carried the most amazing little vehicle that everybody knows out there was the lunar rover. And that was simply tucked onto the side or underneath. I don't know the exact dimensions. But that was incredible because if you jump to Apollo 15, I've had the privilege and honor, maybe some people too have had this honor, to talk to Dave Scott, one of the moonwalkers on Apollo 15. And they landed in an area near a big mountain called Mount Hadley, which is thousands and thousands of feet tall. And the point is they actually got to run around in that rover and they realized after a while that the steering—they had some difficulty with the steering. So the technology, Frank, in the later missions, the big change came. You know, Apollo 14 gave us the impetus to continue. They collected the moon rocks just like the other missions, but it was 15, 16, and 17 that carried more advanced, uh, you know, surface traversing uh, devices like the lunar rover. And actually, many people may not know this—they were slated to be in Apollo 18 and Apollo 19 and I even think there was to be an Apollo 20 but unfortunately Hollywood made a crazy movie I think about one of them called Apollo 20 and it has nothing to do with the real science of the moon but it was a sci-fi gory picture but imagine that but the reason they stopped is because seriously the funding was running out and unfortunately America kind of lost the the passion because people, you know, the average person on the street, you can't blame them. Some of them just said, you know, we did that before. Right, what do we right. Get Been there, done that.
3: Now, another moon mission. Who cares?
0: There you go. Right, another right. one. When are we going to stop, even some people said. But it was all based on budget. But a lot of the thing, and I know we're short on time on this one, basically a lot of the funding was to go into the future of the next generation of spacecraft, and that was the long-lived, and also, which had some tragedies, as we know, the East American Space Shuttle program.
3: Uh, though, yeah, that that is for sure, and and now it looks like we are going back uh, to the moon as part of uh, as yes. part of the Ar- Artemis project, which is pretty exciting.
0: It is very exciting, and hopefully, I think they're moving the date of the actual return this time, men and women, rightfully so, to go to the moon. Probably now. I mean, we were looking at maybe doing this by twenty twenty four, but I think, according to reliable sources that I talked to, we're probably looking, Frank, probably up to even twenty twenty eight. Sad but true, we actually could do it. Very quickly, but that's a whole other story.
3: We're talking with Steve Cates, aka Dr. Sky. We're going to give you an opportunity to ask questions about astronomy, about space, about the things that we're seeing in the night sky. If you have questions, we will do our best to have Dr. Sky answer them. Heaven knows I'm not going to be able to answer any of your questions, but uh, Steve certainly can. 800 848 9222 That's one 800 848-WABC. Now, there have been a lot of reports of myst- uh, some recent sunspot activity. Be- oh, yes. Before we get into what exactly sunspot, w- what the recent sunspot activity is, remind listeners, if you would, Steve, what exactly is a sunspot?
0: Very good question, Frank. The surface of the sun that people shouldn't stare at is what they call the photosphere, thus the light sphere. The temperatures there, if you could go there, please don't, is about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, the sun is this big fusion ball. It's not burning, it's fusion. And if we could do that here on the Earth, could you imagine if you had a small suitcase, you could power almost half a city? But that's another thing that people are—you know in the science world are doing. So a sunspot, when you see it, it looks dark because it's actually cooler, and it's actually porous. So if you can imagine like a cloud or a fog, and my examples maybe not the best because fog isn't hot but if you were to see some sort of a penetration into that fog the deeper that goes in toward that photosphere the cooler it gets and these sunspots frank on the average they dwarf the size of the earth and around them are these areas which we call the inner parts called the umbra like in people who in the art world know an umbra is a dark shadow the outer shadow that you see, or the grayish area, is something called a penumbra. So, in a three-dimensional model, you would see it as if you looked at—say, you put a bowling ball on top of a trampoline—and you would see it slowly arcing down, like we're talking about bending space and time. But there are cooler areas in the Sun's photosphere, and when they start to get other sunspots around them, they do this magnetic dance. And when this magnetic flux snaps, I'm keeping it simple, we get what's known as a solar flare which then can force energy up through that photosphere, up and out from the solar corona, which is the atmosphere of the sun, not a breathable one. And the strangest thing, Frank, is that the corona of the sun is millions of degrees hot, while the surface of the sun is only 12,000 degrees. And when you get that snapping of a magnetic field, and the you know energy transmuting up through the uh, photosphere into the corona... You get what's going on right now, and we're calling these coronal mass
3: ejections headed right toward the Earth. I mean, that is pretty neat, to say the least. Uh, 800-848-9222, if you have questions or uh, comments for Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. It seems like sunspot activity gets blamed for everything. I've heard it blamed for everything from obscure radio signals to uh, electric outages. How, do sun, how much can sunspot activity actually affect life on Earth here?
0: Well, Frank, there's something going on right now, and information is coming in, and people can go all over the Internet and scour around and find this. There's so many stories. Space, you know, uh, SpaceX just launched another cluster or a constellation of satellites, the Skylink satellites. And what's just happened here, the Starlinks, what's just happened is apparently – a number of these Starlink satellites got up into the atmosphere. They have this holding area of about like 130 miles above the Earth. So we're getting news right now. This story is developing. Eighty percent of the 49 that were sent up have to be deorbited because of the solar you know storm that's coming, this big CME. And what it does, it changes the pressure that's, say, up there in the lower part of the Earth's atmosphere. So when these Starlink satellites are up, let's say, at 130 miles, and then, then they use these little ion thrusters on them. That's a whole technology thing and a show for itself. They move them to a higher level of, of above the Earth. And that area above the Earth with those Starlinks, they're going to be used for what? Internet communications around the globe. So what we're finding out is one of the most amazing things that's happening right now is that over the weekend, a gigantic prominence, meaning this big vein of gas, gigantic, the size of Jupiter, was sitting on the edge of the sun. Now, I have a solar telescope, and when you look at this this thing through the solar telescope, Frank, it's this monstrous thing sitting on the side of the sun. That was one of the causes, among other things, of where the CME came out. So it's a large sunspot (laughs) group on the sun called Active Region 2939. It's a rather large sunspot. If people go to a website called spaceweather.com, you'll see the image of the sun live. And that sunspot is the precursor or or the cause, I should say, of the CME that's actually going to hit the Earth on the 10th of February. But it's it's also hit a little early in some parts of the world. So that's made the uh, Starlink cluster that they sent up. They have to deorbit those satellites, and they're going to safely burn up in the atmosphere. But wow, what what a loss financially for uh, something that the sun's doing to the Earth. And that's mild.
3: That is for sure. All right. We have the phone lines jammed with people that have questions for you. And I'm going to do something that's very difficult for me. I'm going to try and be quiet and allow them to ask you some questions. Uh, we're going to be back in just a moment. with a, We have a lot of other subjects to get to, some wild mysteries out of Antarctica, an update on the James Webb Space Telescope, and a whole bunch more. And your questions, of course, at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Straight ahead.
2: W-A-B-C. You're hearing things. You're hearing things. Uh-huh. On
1: 77 W-A-B-C.
3: Some cheap sunglasses. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy, space, weather, wide variety of other areas. If, if one hour of uh, Dr. Skydom is not enough for you... You could also check out the website, ktar.com, and check out the Dr. Sky blog on there. There's a lot of great content on there, and uh, it's a great way to learn more about what's happening, and it's expressed in a way that even laymen like me can understand. Hey, Steve, we've we've spoken about this before, but... what exactly sparked your interest in space and astronomy? I know in spite of the honorary title of Dr. Sky, you're not uh, actually a uh, Ph.D., but you seem more knowledgeable about what's going on in space than many of the Ph.D.s that I've actually spoken to. How did you get to know so much about what's well, happening in space? thank you, in Mark. Interspace? I mean, that's a nice compliment. But that's here, true. But here
0: it is, very simply. Back in New York when I lived there, we were in Jackson Heights, Queens, very close to LaGuardia Airport, and at the time, friends of ours worked at the Bulova Watch Factory that was over there. And here's, what it got, here's how I got started. One night, which was back in 1966, a long time ago, I remember people saying, hey, there's going to be a meteor shower tonight. And I was a little kid. I didn't really understand that. So we went up on top of the apartment building, and then the lights of New York weren't as you know, bright as they are today, but they were still bright. I got to see this amazing thing, shooting stars, as they called them, or meteors. Then, from money that I earned, you know, from doing household chores and my little allowance, my parents helped me, and we got this little $10 telescope, and we got started in that area. And ever since then, Frank, it's been, you know, a real passion. And the Dr. Sky name, obviously, is part of our corporation, Dr. Sky Incorporated, for the things that you talk about that we do, so many public programs, multimedia, and all that. But that was something else. Going to the Hayden Planetarium when we were little, my sister actually cried and had to run out of the room Because if anybody's been there, at least the old days, remember the big projector? She thought it was like a giant ant or a monster. Wow. But that was a great place to go and still is, obviously, one of the classic of the planetariums around the nation. But without taking too much time on that, Frank, if people want to learn more about what I've done, it's simple. They put up a Wikipedia page for just Steve Cates and... The rest is history, and people could go there and see the details.
3: All right. Uh, without further ado, we'll give uh, the callers an opportunity to be heard. Let's begin with Robert in Philadelphia. Hello there, Robert.
1: Hey, how you guys doing? Good morning. Hi. Good, Robert. How are you? I have to say, Dr. Skye, I love listening to you, but, boy, you sound like Lou Dobbs like nobody I've ever heard before. Um, <laughs> well, thanks, I I a,
3: This actually had is had Lou quick... Dobbs. That's why, uh, oh, Okay. The, yeah, the, he, if, if he you hear pass, Steve he go off pass. on illegal immigration, then his, the <laughs> jig is up. That's a
1: whole different <laughs> subject, right, Robert? We don't talk <laughs> absolutely, about Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I was wondering, is it true that you could fit every other planet in the solar system, between the Earth and the Moon.
0: Absolutely, if you condensed everything. But remember this, the biggest gap in the solar system is simply the one that we call the gap that's between, well, actually the most area that's there in space is between Mars and Jupiter. But yes, if you compacted everything, even more interesting, you could probably put all the planetary objects into the size of Jupiter, because remember, both Jupiter and Saturn are just gaseous all the way. And you'd probably do the same thing with Uranus and Neptune. So, yes, you're on to a good uh, thing down there. And, hey, we love Philadelphia. We have a lot of friends down there that are regular listeners uh, and obviously to this show. But uh, as you get a little bit to the west of Philadelphia, you know, you get to see a little bit of a dark sky, and that's what it's all about, and we appreciate that. Thank Robert.
3: you, Robert. Tyrone is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello there, Tyrone. Good morning. Um, Dr. Sky. Um, do you
4: believe there is an end to the universe? Because well, here, yes, if there is an end to the universe, what barrier could possibly cause it to be an end? In other words, well, the right. end of anything. Yeah. Has- mm-hmm. Go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. Okay. And also, the other part of my question is you said 49 things have been sent up there and now have to be deactivated and are going to come back down and burn up at a yes. cost of a tremendous amount of money. So why are we doing that when the Earth – people are still starving down here? So it's a kind of a two-part question.
0: Well, Tyrone, let me go to the first – I mean, let me go to the last part of your question there. And it's very interesting. You bring up a good point here. I mean, what Elon Musk is doing, there's controversy in all this. I think the technology is great. But if you take it from the astronomy side, the astronomers are scratching their head. And, Frank, this is also interesting. Their photos that they're taking are getting photobombed by all the Starlink satellites. But obviously it's a money thing, and I think in one way, Tyrone – I mean we could debate this all night, but again, we could just give you the best straight-up info, and that's what I'll give you. It's going to help a lot of people with his Starlink system because there's places on the earth that people do not have access to internet, and if so many people in the world are deprived of that, I think they shouldn't be, so that's a good thing. But going back to the first part of your question about where and maybe how far does the universe expand, and then maybe what's the end – if you look about 13.8 billion years ago when the alleged expansion took place, and I say alleged because it wasn't an explosion. you know It happened not around the Earth. The Earth wasn't here. The best estimates I can give you now is that on either side of the universe, if you took the whole spherical ball now that's expanding, it's about maybe 90 billion light years beyond you know, where it started. But the interesting thing is I don't think that that's the end at all because more and more physicists and astrophysicists are talking about the thing called the multiverse. So we may be, in the most simplistic way, Tyrone, a universe that's built like sausages on a string, and obviously there may be many more mu- universes, what we call multiverses. Kind of an interesting subject. Oh, wow,
3: absolutely. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's eight hundred eight Let's say hello to Corey in Brooklyn. Hello there, Corey. What's your question for Steve Gates?
0: Good morning, Corey. Hello. It's
1: an uh, honor. I love when you're on. Um,
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: My my question was uh, this thing we call the dark side of the moon. Yes. And is there, when you're in another hemisphere or, say, different latitude or longitude, do you see different sides of the moon, or is the dark side never visible from Earth?
0: The dark – we call it the far side, and I don't want to sound like – Okay, the
1: far side. I'm
0: sorry. No, I don't want to sound like – a no, no, no. I don't want to sound like an intellectual snob. They call it the far side for a good reason, because Pink Floyd obviously took the thing, and I love them too with dark side. But the simple answer is the moon, we never see that other side or hemisphere of the moon. And what's really interesting, Corey, is that the Chinese have done something which is really amazing. What did they do? They sent a little spacecraft and a couple of these spacecraft to the far side of the moon with a little rover that's running around up there called U-2. But the the simple answer is we don't see the other side because the moon, as if you hold your hand in front of your face and you move around in a circle and your hand follows you around so that it doesn't appear like it's rotating, we're kind of what they call the synchronous rotator. And in the simplest way, we never get to see the far side but it's an amazing uh, region of the moon there's so many other strange things that it's much more cratered than the front side of the moon that we see so we don't see the other side
3: thank you Corey. you know you alluded to what china's doing in terms of space exploration e- even you know china obviously we have a very interesting relationship as a country with with china at the height mm-hmm. of we the do. cold war We had an interesting relationship with the Soviet Union, and they had a very robust space program. As it stands now, what sort of cooperation, if any, is going on between the American space program and the Chinese space program? And why are they doing so many things that we haven't been doing, like going to the moon and examining that far side of the moon, for instance?
0: Another good question, Frank, and here's the simple thing. The answer straight up is, America does not have, unless there's some secret negotiations that all of us are not aware of. They're not part of the International Space Station. The Russians are, and there's some tensions there. The space station will be up there to at least 2030. But China has a very unique space program. And by the way, I don't remember the gentleman's name who was actually the person who developed the Chinese space program. But the simple story behind that is this was a man who was educated in the United States at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I believe he was deported, and I don't know exactly when, but he gave all the think tank information to the Chinese space program. But the bottom line with them is they're doing some amazing things that are shocking the world. Here, here's one to give you a couple of, or a couple of examples. They developed a Mars rover, they developed a Mars orbiter, and they developed a Mars lander. No country, even the United States, did not do all of those things in one fell swoop. So last year they sent a, a mission to Mars. It had a descent module. The other, you know, the the other part of the spacecraft stayed in orbit. It had a descent module, which is it landed on the surface, and out of it came a rover. So their technology is just amazing, as what's going on. And going from the geopolitical stuff, what about the hypersonic missile that they supposedly have, that has potential ability for nuclear, you know, devices to be placed on it? Uh, many in our own military, including what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, is sure. even kind of shocked too. So they're just doing things at a robust pace. But let's hope that somehow cooler heads prevail because it looks like they want to dominate space. And I guess that's a no-brainer if you read into this.
3: Yeah, no, that is for sure. If people are just tuning in, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You could check out more of his work at KTAR.com. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk with Sandy Behan. She is... One of the leaders of a group called We Decide New York, and uh, she has staked out, which is uh, something which is kind of an unpopular position in many different quarters, which is she is uh, the head of one of the largest pro-Andrew Cuomo groups, and she's one of the people – angling for an Andrew Cuomo comeback. We're going to get into that with her coming up next hour. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Jay in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello there, Jay.
4: How you doing, Frank? Hey, good
0: morning, Jay. Go (laughs) Bengals.
4: Yes, you better believe it. It's been a long time. I've got a little local connection. My grandfather worked at Sperry Gyroscope. Oh, wow. And uh, he started in Brooklyn Navy Yard, and then he moved out to New Hyde Park, They had a a large facility there. Well, the Hayden Planetarium had a class where you could make your very own six-inch reflective telescope. Oh, yes. Okay. Absolutely. And my grandfather was the guy who helped everybody grind their own lenses. Wow.
0: That's an honor to hear this. You know, Jay, that's amazing because I remember being part of that group. There was a group called the New York Amateur Astronomers, if I have it right, and Jay, that was amazing because I didn't actually do what you're describing there, but that was something unusual because most places never gave the you know the person the ability to do it, and that's real old school, right, Jay? Because nowadays people buy telescopes wherever they get them, you, you know, you probably watering.
4: It's <laughs> yes, incredible. Yes, yes, He he had, I have wonderful pictures of the, all those classes, and here's my grandfather oh. instructing everyone how to make your own lens. Which what is what a beautiful precision. story. Oh, yes. you bet it. It okay. takes skill. The. The Sperry gyroscope found out he was doing this, mm-hmm. and at the time, there was no GPS. So my grandfather, they found out he was making optical flats for the navigation systems of Minuteman missiles and all the missiles, early missile systems. Awesome. Wow. And That's awesome.
3: That's pretty cool, Jay. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, this is a treat. We have something of a celebrity caller on the line, uh, Steve. This is uh, my friend John Tobacco, who's very well-known in our area, recently ran for New York City Controller, also mm-hmm. happens to uh, host a show on Newsmax TV called Wise Guys and happens to be a, a longtime friend of mine for over 20 years. Uh, John Tobacco, great to hear from you. Good morning, Chad, John.
2: Hey, Steve, good morning. Frank, good morrow. It's always great listening to you. You're the only person that can keep me sitting in my car for a half hour because I just want to keep listening. <laughs> and then when you have on Steve, forget about it. I might be out here all night. But, uh, <laughs> Steve, I, yeah. I I am uh, I am a, a little bit of a, a universal astronomical wonk or amateur wonk. Sure. And uh, I was recently reading an article um where they focused a the telescope on the darkest spot in the sky for 40 hours straight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found inside there, like, multiple galaxies, like, uh, millions of, you know, innumerable galaxies that sure. equaled more of those behind them. And yes. I'm just trying to figure out, what does that really mean in comparison to the size of Earth to the depth of the galaxy I can't even do the math
0: well John first of all good morning your comment and your question are great here's the answer on that the Hubble Space Telescope the astronomers there decided to do something and just see what they call the deep field image and what they did they took a little swatch of the sky like you would take a piece of say a bedspread and cut a little piece of paper or whatever a little thing like a post size maybe against the sky and it was dark from here in the Earth. You could look up there and you'd say, ah, even with a telescope you know, like we would have in the backyard, you can't see much of anything, few stars. They imaged that, spent a little time doing it. And lo and behold, like you said, John, they saw innumerable numbers of gal- – incredible numbers of galaxies. And what's even so stranger is it's peering deeper and deeper and deeper into that early creation of the universe. And if that was what they saw through the Hubble – can we all imagine, right, John, what they're going to see with the James Webb Telescope, which is hopefully going to be mind-boggling. And, guys, what they just did is the Hubble – I mean the James Webb Telescope, excuse me – they just imaged their first star, and it's not the thing that the astronomers are looking to see what's around the star. They're trying to coordinate and calibrate the lens and the and the mirror system on the James Webb. So, John, you brought up a good subject. So in that little tiny darkness area – there was just so many galaxies, and the space is just so amazing. It literally is, you know, limitless. It's just amazing.
2: I I, I kind of try to play around with the liberal, um, you know, global warming theory that's caused by man. And and the more space I find in the universe, the less and less I think that we could have any impact on it. Um, so it seems like me to me that we're only finding the inner depths of the galaxy at this point
0: sure john and going on to the subject real quickly of climate change all weather comes from the sun so i'll leave it to the audience to decide and the volcanic activity on the earth i mean you know it's great to be a conservationist like say teddy roosevelt we don't want to pollute nobody does in the right mind but if you look at it this way that hunga tonga explosion that just took place in the tonga area in the south pacific that's put up so much in the way of carbon dioxide mm. and sulfuric acid. But the point is, the sun drives all weather. So anybody who wants to take another side of this, I would just hope that the media would give us more of an open mind to give us both sides of the story. And I think, John, you're onto something there. John, uh, well, great to hear you from you, from so you my much.
3: friend. I will see you soon. Thank you, ben. Thank
2: you, thank ben. you, John.
3: Thank you John Tobacco. Uh, again, you catch him on Wise Guys on Saturday nights now. 800 um, 848 if you want to jump on board. Uh, the p- phones are jammed, but, uh, Steve, I don't want to let the hour go by sure, without no. following up on uh, a story that you briefly touched upon with John Katsimatidis, on Sunday morning, that is uh, the subject of Antarctica. Probably yes. our most mysterious continent, probably the continent, not probably, definitely the continent the fewest people have visited. Why are we talking about Antarctica now? What are the mysteries happening in Antarctica that people need to be aware of?
0: Well, here's a quick summary, and it may take me a moment because there's so many of them. And with John, we explored just a few, and that was a great exchange. But if you're ever looking for meteorites, Antarctica has probably the most amazing number of these. We don't really know why, but the easiest way to find them is that they're dark brown and black. They're like burnt, like a piece of coal, and they're sitting on ice, so you can identify them. But here's something interesting. Back in the year 1513, a Turkish admiral named Pyridrius actually developed a map of the world. Now think about this. This map of the world, how did it come out? Well, on the map of the world that's amazing that he did... He shows all of the structure of Africa, pretty much an identical way it looks from a satellite, and South America. And he also had a description of Antarctica, which in many ways was kind of primitive, but it wasn't all that bad. So here's the size of this particular continent. It's 1.5 times the size of the United States. But, Frank, 90% of all the ice in the world is there. And it gets even more bizarre. There's over 400 underground lakes two miles below the ice. One of them is called Lake Vostok. They're living organisms in that particular salt-laden lake. It doesn't freeze. Even more bizarre. They're red waterfalls that come out of this glacier called the Taylor Glacier wow. from iron ore that comes out of the earth. The lowest temperature ever recorded there. Here we go, folks. It's cold in other parts of the country, but this one's a real uh, knuckle bunder. 128.9 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Ouch. But even more amazing, however, it gets even better. There's a buried forest and a mountain range with many fossils that have been found. And there's this mountain range that's 750 miles long called the Gamburston Mountain Range, a large hole in Antarctica that nobody can understand, an active volcano called Mount Erebus, which sadly a DC-10 with a bunch of tourists flew around there, from Air New Zealand back, I believe, 1979, and sadly they got snow blinded and they crashed into the mountain. Wow. That's a sad thing. But here we go. I saved the best for last. Adolf Hitler actually sent an expedition to Antarctica to claim that particular continent or a large part of it for the Reich. Well, what's so strange about that? Why did he do it? For the land? No, he had a fear. Get a lot of this. This almost sounds too bizarre to talk about on the radio, but it's true. He didn't want the German people to be deprived of fat, like butter fat. So they wanted to go down there and do the whaling thing for the oil. And guess what they wanted it for? Simply something we call margarine. Now, that that sounds like it doesn't fit into any story that has any science. I I can't
3: believe I've never heard that before. So Hitler claimed Antarctica for the Nazis, parts of of Antarctica, for the Nazis in the name of margarine?
0: Well, I guess that's the funny way to think about it. But think about it: they wanted to do the whaling, which is whale oil, and then it even gets more bizarre, which goes into the whole you know conspiracy thing. And I don't know where I stand on it, but also the possibility that there were some levitating craft that were built and developed down there, or found. And if you think about a movie that, of course, had two you know two two editions of it, you look at this whole movie that they had where there was a flying saucer buried in the ice. And you remember in, in both of them, it was James R. Ness was the monster in this the first edition of the movie. But any, anyway, I think Hitler and his the Reich, they were looking not just to develop a food source for their people, mm. but they wanted to claim a good portion of it for the Reich. So all that story is just amazing. And it, it goes into an expedition. They sent a ship down there with, I believe, some kind of a seaplane that they could fly around. But uh, wow, I'm glad things turned out that they didn't succeed.
3: Absolutely. Uh, that is wild indeed. 800 848 WABC. Bill is in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Steve Cates.
4: Good morning, Bill. Okay. All right. Most of the stars in the galaxy are red dwarfs, right? For different reasons. Okay.
0: I well, mean, I've I'm never saying, seen
4: one. Right.
0: You're Can I see right? one? You know, that's interesting. No, This is interesting. No red dwarfs, to my knowledge, are actually visible to the naked eye. Now, you're right about this. The evolution of stars, that's their end of life. And astronomers are saying, <clears throat> Bill, excuse me, that if there are potential planets around many of these, well, there are potential planets around many stars, that the probable place to look for so-called intelligent life may not be around sun-like stars like ours. But because of the predominance of red dwarfs, that's something that, of course there may be these potential planets where the temperature is just right. But here's one that I'll give you out there and everybody listening to check on. The nearest star to the Earth is the Alpha Centauri, or the system, is the Alpha Centauri system. The little tiny star called Proxima Centauri is actually a little closer, but it also in the category as being a red dwarf star. So what I'm saying is oh, about 4.16, 4.20 light years away, we have this object that, going back to what I just said about the possibility of more life type or organic life, maybe that's a place, but there are so many red dwarfs that populate this galaxy and others.
3: And if if you are looking to spot some interesting activity in the night sky, uh, we've covered, you, you caught us up with what the James Webb telescope is seeing, but if people have a pair of binoculars or a telescope themselves, maybe even the naked eye, is there anything coming up in oh, the yes. in the coming nights, or the weeks, months that people should be prepared to keep an eye on?
0: Well, I understand your weather's good. So as we move into the early morning here with the ninth, anybody just even with the naked eye, if you have a good view of the southeast sky, and you're probably seeing this already, that brilliant beacon of light that you're seeing is not a UFO or an aircraft trying to land. It's Venus. And what's happening, Frank, is we get to Valentine's Day, being a little bit in the you know love side of the world. Venus, the goddess of love and beauty herself, is brightest this morning on the 9th. So if you get out there and you have a clear sky, there's no reason that anybody with, you know, even average eyesight, you'll not be able to miss this. It's extremely bright. And then on the 12th, Venus shows its greatest illuminated extent. What does that mean? In a telescope binoculars, Venus is a fat crescent. So the more of Venus that's illuminated, because it's closer to the Earth than normal, That gives it its greatest brilliance. That's just beautiful in itself. But the early morning planets, Frank, right now, it used to be the evening sky when we had Saturn, we had Jupiter, and we had a few other objects in that area, Mercury. Now that everything shifted to the morning sky, so as this month evolves, you're going to see Mercury, Venus, and Mars relatively close together in the sky in the southeast, and especially for Valentine's Day. So who is she? She's the goddess of love and beauty. So take your significant other out there, right, and say, look, there she is.
3: <laughs> Certainly ironic that it happens to be the week of Valentine's Day, and you can it's see that great isn't. one? All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in just a moment. 800-848-WABC if you want to jump on board. Three open lines. Those of you that are holding, we will try and get to you. Uh, I have a number of other questions. We're going to squeeze in as much content as we can within the next few minutes straight ahead.
2: WABC we are new york on new york's talk radio 77 wabc now here's frank marano
3: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer. You can learn more about some of the subjects that we've been talking about by going to ktar.com. And uh, he's lucky. He's uh, very kind to join us on this program from time to time. I'm lucky enough to be able to ask him questions, and you're lucky enough to have that same opportunity right now by dialing 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Andy in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. Hello, Andy.
1: Good morning, Andy.
3: Frank, how are you?
1: I uh, I love listening to you, and your programs are great. Thank you. uh. I wanted to ask Dr. Sky. Well, uh, let me tell Dr. Sky something first. I worked for 25 years, almost 25 years, at the Schott Company in Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're uh, you know, Schott in Germany, in Mainz, made the uh, ceramic base for the Hubble telescope.
0: That oh, was amazing. Absolutely. With Perkin Elmer, I guess, was the contractor on the mirror.
1: Right. Yeah, they Absolute. screwed up the polishing on the first run, <laughs> yeah. but they did fix it.
0: <laughs> you bet they did. <laughs> And I knew the astronaut that hey, fixed God. it. It was Story Musgrave.
1: Ask you um, I'm 70 years old. I'm, I'm semi-retired right now. Yes. But uh, I enjoy stargazing in oh, astronomy. Yeah. And yes. is there any uh, Internet program or uh, offering where I could learn to be a better stargazer?
0: Well, I'm going to recommend the website here, Randy, and I think this one really not- knocks it out of the park. It's a good friend of ours in Italy. And he's developed a place called, or a website called The Sky, just theskylive.com. And why I think this is fascinating, and Frank, this is also good for everybody listening who's beginning in astronomy. It gives you what's happening in the sky. It has a personal planetarium that you can set up by wherever you live. In other words, not everybody has a super sophisticated smartphone, let's say, where they can do the sky apps. Go yeah. there and check this out because I think you'll and I, and I think the gentleman is is Giuseppe is going to be really happy in Italy, right, Frank, for me telling him <laughs> this. But it's, seriously, it's a beautiful website. I use it a lot. But here's the final part of this: if you're a telescope viewer, it gives you the most amazing view. Like, let's say I'm looking at a planet. Let's say uh, Saturn. It shows you exactly where Saturn is in the deep field sky. So, in other words, if you have a telescope, it's not just the regular view that you see when you're standing with your naked eye. And it shows you where the objects will be moving in the course of hours, and it's a real-time thing. And you can actually see comets moving. I've used it so many times. So Skylive.com, that to me is a real it, – it, it's like a gift to the world in my opinion.
1: Oh, I got it, doctor. That's great. Yeah, that's
3: a yeah. great question, Andy. Thank you. Uh, let me ask a question as well before we continue with sure. the call, Steve. is yes. uh, A couple of weeks ago, the, our, our owner, John Katzmatidis asked me uh, to, to follow up on a science fiction uh, program that I had recommended on the radio because I think it was a day of a snowstorm. A lot of people were yes. stuck home, and he was in the mood to watch some compelling science fiction Are there any compelling science fiction movies or television programs that are available on streaming, for instance, that you'd recommend, uh, maybe something that people have missed?
0: Well, I think the simple answer to this is if you go back to Carl Sagan. I think his original Cosmo series was really something that I think people should watch. And I think for young children out there, you know, obviously it's family friendly. And he had a certain flair about him. I remember me visiting with him once at Cornell University and spent a little time with him when he was alive. But the point is, I think I would watch that particular series. That's more science as, as it sure. goes. But I think if you look in there's, I'm a big collector and big fan of a lot of the sci-fi B movies. And people may laugh at that and go, well, that's kind of stupid. Some movies are kind of dumb. Well, the point is, I like to look at them, but here's one. If if you really want to have some fun, here's a classic that I think everybody should see if they have it. It's Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Hmm. And it's a classic black and white movie that I think actually has some very interesting science in it about the flying saucers that the aliens flew. And it's just an amazing series about how they did the special effects on this. And the whole story is just uh, something that I would watch over and over again. But that's a recommendation. Earth
3: versus the flying saucers was one of my All favorites. Right.
0: There you go.
3: That's pretty good. All right. Uh, let me say hello to Makita in Queens. Hello, Makita. Hi.
1: Hello. Good Hi. Morning. I have a question for Dr. Yes. Sky. Thank you guys for uh, allowing me to ask the question. Dr. Yes, Sky, please. could could you explain how, um, well, I, I read that black holes are the only celestial bodies that are dense enough to bend time behind and around them, Right. Could you explain how time bends when it is in the proximity of a black hole?
0: Well, it's very interesting. If you think about this, Makita, this is fascinating. And again, we're just learning. We're scratching the surface on this. Einstein had it right. Stephen Hawking had it even more correct. What's happening as anything in the universe, electromagnetism, gravity, everything, as it gets closer to this area around it called the event horizon, everything is warped By time and space. So, in other words, the greatest gravity fields that we'll ever come across, at least now, is that of a black hole. And this is interesting because even Stephen Hawking said that black holes may not be as finite as we thought. In other words, black holes may not be as constant. They may pop in and out of the universe over time. But how they're doing that, it's bending space and time because gravity is being pulled around the curvature of space. It's so powerful that it's warping the entire time space continuum. And there's also a theory, and you've probably all heard about this, Frank and Makita and everybody listening, that what goes in must come out. So there's the possibility that this is a transmission point where material goes in the black hole and it comes out in something called a wormhole. And that's also fascinating, but we're just, we're just scratching the surface on this stuff.
2: What was the solar flares, and do you think that one of these flares could flare off the sun and actually reach any of the planets? And not
4: just
0: the radiation. As I mentioned before, solar flares is a refresher here. When magnetic lines on the sun between sunspots snap, that's the simple answer. They send this big snapping energy field in a a flare. Now, this flare, Frank and Tommy, that just is, is causing what happened with the Starlink satellites. This flare lasted for three hours. So these flares don't normally last that long. And that particular flare has blasted out something called a CME toward the Earth. Venus got hit, but Venus doesn't have a magnetic field, so it's not going to work. Venus is you know, protected, basically. It doesn't worry about that. But here on the Earth, we could. And I don't want to alarm people or alarm Tommy. Tommy, you don't sound like you alarm easily. This particular gi- gigantic flare that we just had, that's mild by comparison, because over history, it's thought that there have been some mega flares and going back to what we're talking about, can they reach the planets? Yes, indeed. All of these go out into the solar system, but there have been times when I'm sure they've actually reached all the way out to the areas like Uranus and Neptune. And if there were inhabitants there, they would have felt it. But Earth's closer, and it would have been a destructive device that's uh, man-made.
3: Mm. Uh, and that, uh, it,
0: non-man-made, obviously nature. Uh, right. uh,
3: you know, uh, one listener, Mike in New Rochelle, sent me an email. And in our final minute, I, I figured I'd, mm. I would ask you about this. Besides Buzz Aldrin, who are the other three living people that have walked on the moon?
0: Well, that's interesting, and I, I know it's Harrison Schmidt, and I'm trying to think of the other people that are that are that are alive today. I've had them on my programs, but now I'm trying to draw. I'm drawing a blank here. But Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon, is still alive. And Apollo 16, I'm trying to think of the gentleman. God help me if I can, can't think this quickly at this hour for me. But you only oh, was have it
3: David Sott. I just looked uh, David Dave Scott, Scott right? David Dave, Scott. Yeah,
0: Dave Scott is alive. And also, I'm trying to think here, We have Harrison Schmidt and you have Charlie Duke and you have Buzz Aldrin. I think those are the answers. All
3: right. Well, uh, uh, the hour has just flown by, Steve. I will very much look forward to the next time we have the opportunity to do this. It is always a treat to talk with you. I want to encourage everybody to check out your blog at ktar.com. dot com. My only regret when it, when it comes to having you on the radio, Steve, is that you're not on every day.
0: Well, thank you, Frank, and I appreciate it. Love being on 77 WABC and love the listeners and love the show. And we'll be uh, seeing you soon, and I'm sure that that'll happen and we'll get ready to do that.
3: Absolutely. And the